I'm going to do something a little bit different than normal, and that is I'm not going to start with a story. I just want to jump right into it. Um, in fact, I want to jump right into what I perceive to be somewhat of a problem. Um, it seems like recently in the messages we kind of come into problems or issues, but this in particular is a problem between what we say we believe and what we often experience. One of the things we say we believe as, as followers of Jesus and people who believe in the Scripture is that the gospel is all about changing people. I mean, you think about it, that's the whole purpose of the cross, is to change uh, sinners into saints. Uh, the purpose of the Spirit being given to us is, is that, that we might become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, that uh, we might see sins that entangle us shed and the fruits of righteousness produced in our lives in greater measure of joy and peace and love and compassion and kindness. So the gospel is all about changing life. It's all about people becoming more and more like Jesus. And, and the gospel promises the power to change. The problem, however, is that many believers, perhaps I should say some, but I think the category is probably many, don't experience that kind of change. Um, we might say that there is a paralysis in their progress or they stall in their sanctification. That's just a fancy word for um, how God changes us into the image of Jesus. That's, that's what he's doing. Um, but there is often this dissonance between what we say we believe that the gospel changes lives and then we, we keep in our own personal lives hitting this cast iron barrier that we don't seem, seem to be able to get past and, and, and we don't experience that change. And that can be very discouraging and it can also be um, a seed or plant seeds of doubt in us that is this truth real? Does the gospel really change my life? Or let's get a little more concrete. Most of you parents... Um, if you've read like Deuteronomy 6 or other parts of the scripture, you know it's your personal responsibility to intentionally build into the lives of your kids faith, um, to instruct them into the ways of the Lord, to be good role models to them, um, to see that they are educated in the works and the wonders of who God is. And yet many of us parents feel like abysmal failures in that regard. And perhaps you have been one of those parents and you've tried to implement different things, you've tried to um, set up devotional times to to structure into your family life um, this thing we call the transmission of faith to our kids. But you try it, and then it lasts a little while, and you end up defaulting back into the rut and kind of letting things happen as they happen. And that's discouraging. It's discouraging, especially if you've tried, you've tried, you've tried to be a better parent, tried to be a better mother, tried to be a better father, and then you find yourself just defaulting right back into the same position, and you wonder, it, it, does does this really work? There's others of you that know and have experienced in the past that you need to get a hold of your finances and rein in um, your spending. And I have had friends who have, uh, in an effort to do that, who have uh, frozen their credit cards in their freezer, cut them up. I'm, my cousin did that. Uh, she'll never listen to this message, so I won't get in trouble for saying that. You've seen financial counselors. You've had consultation. And you try it for a little bit, try different budgeting techniques. But in the end... You default right back into the same lifestyle of spending more than you have, not being content with what you have. And re after repeated tries, it, it often becomes, um, well, discouraging. And you, again, wonder if what the gospel says about the power to change life is real. Is what we say we believe true? Now, finances and economics in the family life are not just an economic issue. It, at the end, it is a spiritual issue. It's an issue of the heart. Um, and you could add to that a whole list of different things. We have people in our own church family who are struggling with addictions, addictions to pornography, 
addictions to prescription medications, addictions to alcohol, addictions to gambling. And I know people who have tried and tried and tried to break the chain of that enslavement, and they are repeatedly defeated, giving them the sense, does this really work? Does the gospel really change lives? You could add to that anger issues. You could add to that um, control issues. I mean, the list is endless. And uh, my guess is that one or more of you have experienced and continue to experience this hitting the barrier that doesn't seem like you can break through. And it's discouraging and it leaves one feeling, does this gospel thing that all talks about change, does it really work? Or let's, let's, let's not focus on the negative for a moment, let's focus on the, on the positive because the, the gospel is not just about shedding the bad stuff in our lives, it's about bursting forth in the kind of fruits that are beautiful to see in other people, of, 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 of the joy, a fullness of joy and, and tangible loving um, concrete acts towards others and kindness and patience and peace, the sense of security in your life even when other things are, are falling apart. I mean, those are, the, those are the fruits of what we're to be growing in, not just the shedding of the negative, but the blossoming of the positive. And have you been able to discern in your life or your husband's life, wife's life, or your parents or um, your kids measurable changes in their life? Well, I would like to propose to all of us tonight, it's what I proposed to the men last night, is one of the reasons that we are paralyzed in our progress, one of the reasons that we stall out in our sanctification, feels like the engines aren't even going, one of the reasons we are crippled and don't feel like there's any changes at all, is because we approach the whole issue of growth and change in either a worldly manner or we get it backwards. That one of the reasons that we short-circuit the whole process of change and growth is because we come at the whole issue of growth in either a worldly manner or we get things backwards. And I believe Colossians chapter 3 is a corrective for us. It lays out for us the process of change in a distinctly Christian, uh, from a distinctly Christian vantage point or framework. Now I'm going to read this. The verses I'm going to focus on are just verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. But I am going to reference verses before and after. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 16. And it's a rather large chunk, but just try and follow the flow of thought, and then I'll come back to it. So here's the text. Paul writes to this ancient church. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. He's talking about how we grow as God causes this growth. And there's something in this church that's inhibiting growth. That's why he is instructing them. Continuing on in verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body 
but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He's saying the way in which certain people are infecting my body in Colossae, the body of Christ in Colossae, they're infecting it in a way and with teaching that has absolutely no value in changing you on the inside. And against that backdrop, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, I'm going to go to verse 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, this nice big list of sinful tendencies, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in, in, in the life you once lived, but now, now here's he's talking about there's been a change that's happened, but now you must rid yourselves of all these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And that's where I finish um, reading here. Before I focus on verses 1 through 4, let me point out what I think are two wrong approaches to change. One of the approaches we often take when we find something in our life that's disagreeable to Christ or to the Bible and we want out of our lives. Typically what we do is we jump right to the instruction of verse 5. Now you may not think of it as jumping to Paul's instruction in verse 5, but it's typically what we do, our first response. And that is, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's, it's, um, it's a kind of chemotherapy for sin. It's uh, amputation. Basically, verse 5 is about amputation. Um, that, brothers and sisters, you've got to cut it off. You've got to kill it. You've got to consider your hands and your eyes and your mind and your feet as dead to those things. That's what you have to do. We oftentimes start there, trying to kill sin. The problem is, is I believe there is an intentional progression of verse, from verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 3 which lead to verse 5. In other words, before verse 5, there's verse, four verses of instructions. And if you start with verse 5, you in essence place the cart before the horse. And you know the horse is meant to pull the cart, not the cart the horse. If you get the cart before the horse, it doesn't work. So if you try and kill sin without first doing what Paul instructs you, and the priority of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, it's going to backfire. In other words, you don't start, change does not start with sin. Change starts with Christ. That's, that's the, the point I want to make. It's, the, it's the approaching the issue of change by getting the cart before the horse. Um, if you start with verse 5 without doing verses 1 through 4, it will backfire and you will experience that kind of stall, that um, crippling of your life, that lack of change. The other approach that's wrong is to try and to try and change to good 
ends through wrong means, namely worldly created religion. Um, Paul speaks of it in a number of places. In chapter 2, he's saying, um, again, there are people who infected this body and they're teaching wrong ways of growth. Um, saying, you don't touch this, don't handle that, don't eat this. Um, and he says right there at the, at the end of chapter 2, and he says, um, I'm in the wrong book. Wow, okay, since you died with Christ, oh, right, verse 21, he says, don't handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to be prepared and so forth. And he says, these regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. These were apparently people teaching that in order to, 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 to advance and to change, you must go through these ascetic practices, this kind of man-made system of religion that doesn't have Jesus at the center. And it was infecting the body. And it's interesting that Paul says this man-made system of religion that doesn't center itself in Jesus lacks all value. There's no value whatsoever in restraining the stuff on the inside. In other words, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the one, is, the one problem is, is, is coming at change from the wrong side, getting the cart before the horse. The other one is to think you can change using humanly derived means. So if those are the two problem approaches, what is the correct approach? And here is the approach, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. This has been deeply helpful for me, by the way. Paul says this, Since then you have been raised up with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Now I'm going to stop there. The Apostle Paul was convinced that there were people in this church who had been raised up with Christ. Now that is an echo of something he said earlier in chapter 2, verse 16, where he said or wrote, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, and so forth. Um, oh, excuse me, it's verse 13, when he says, When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So He made us alive with Christ at the same time. He forgave us our sins, canceling out the dead at the cross and so forth. So what he's talking about in chapter 3, moving forward again, when it says, since then you have been raised up with Christ, it's talking about some point in your life when God made you alive. He awakened you. There was a, an experience of heart that, that opened the eyes of the heart to see new realities, to have new appetites and new desires and so forth. It's a roundabout way of speaking about conversion. In other words, and this is the first point, is that the first requirement of any change in life, that is true Christian change, requires conversion of the soul. That is that your heart actually came to life, that God made you alive with Christ. Um, with the resurrection power of Christ. Now, we think of the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event, which it was, but it is more than just a historical event. It released power for the present so that we might become um, regenerated, that is, born anew in our hearts and awakened to new realities with new appetites and so forth. That is, that's conversion of the soul, and it's something only God can do in the soul. It's when He turns on the lights. And if, and if that hasn't happened in a person's life, you can try to change all you want, but in the end... All you can change is your behavior. You can't change the heart. God's the only one who does that. And He does it by this thing called conversion of the heart. That's a requirement. If there's no conversion, try all you want. But it won't work. The power base of Christian change 
is not found in us. It's found in the conversion of the soul when God raises us up with Christ. That's true. And the sad thing is that you can be in church for years and decades. And you can minister and read your Bible and never truly be converted. That to me is a sad reality. And Jesus taught us that there would be many in the church who were not truly, in biblical language, born again. That is, born anew, having your heart awakened. I know for me personally, that was my case. Some of you know my upbringing. Some of you don't. Um, I was listening to messages when I was in my mom's womb. (laughs) Now, I don't remember them. But my mom went to church three times a week like some of your parents did. And, And I'm sure I heard some sounds of muffled voices over the microphone when I was in there. And uh, once I was born, it was almost without exception, even when we were camping on vacation, it was um, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And then when it was VBS, we were there a whole week, and then I was there a different night for Awanas and learned a whole bunch of verses in the King James Version. I even went with an older gentleman, passed out tracts, and knocked on doors like the Jehovah's Witness and, and, and tried to tell people about Jesus. But I know that during those times I had no authentic desire for the Lord and no confidence that he was real. Now, I adhered to the Christian tradition primarily because of my parents. But I didn't have a hunger for this truth. And I wasn't truly confident that God is right here, right now. It wasn't until I was about 19 years old in the service of Uncle Sam, and I was in a platoon with no Christians, and a young gentleman came into my life. And I saw something that I didn't have. And it was his life that made me realize that I was holding to a shell called Christianity. But he had the real thing. You could see it in, his, in the way that he spoke, in his love for people, his gentleness, his humility. You just, I saw these fruits in his life and the self-control in his life that I desperately wanted. I was thinking to myself, that's what I want. And so I started going to church with him and hearing the scriptures Uh, taught just week after week they just were going through genesis exodus leviticus and something happened i don't even remember the exact moment i just know that god flipped a switch in my heart um and all i can the only way i can describe it is 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 the evidences of, of how it affected me for the first time i saw this book as something that i was not obligated to read i actually wanted to read it i i had a hunger for knowledge a knowledge to know what this book really taught, because now I believed it. Um, I had a desire for the Lord and to experience God. I just hungered, a new hunger I had never had before. Church to me was not an obligation at that point. Coming up as a kid, I would always try and get out of church. Mom, I want to watch Disney Disney, um, on Sunday nights, and she would never let me. Her Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, you remember that? That was always Sunday night programming. Those were my shows. I couldn't see them because I had to go to church. Church to me was an obligation. But the first time, I wanted to go, and I found my heart warmed and satisfied when I went. I wanted to go. I, I, I became more concerned about other people. And it's, all I can ex- explain is that there's a switch that God turned on and brought me to life. Now, certainly I am not perfect. That was a long time ago, but that hunger has never died. There's been times when it's waned, but it's never gone away. And, and that's the best I can do to describe what happens when God converts the soul. It's, it's a miracle. It's not something we ourselves do. First and foremost, conversion is something God does in the soul. And when that happens, when that happens, then you want to change from the inside out. Now, I'd venture to say, even in a smaller group like this, that 
there might be some who, who would honestly say, well, I, I, I don't know if I've ever had that happen to me. I want to be careful here because I know not everybody's conversion experience is the same. Sometimes it's pronounced and very powerful, and at other times it's just a seed. But the fruits are more or less the same. Even if they're just in seed form, that there now is a desire for truth, a desire for, for the Lord, a new love for Christ, even if it's tiny, there's this reorientation of the soul that happens. And if you're one of those people that I've never had that happen before, and this is an obligation, church to me is an obligation, then perhaps tonight the biggest discovery you can make is that you need God to awaken your soul. And the best prayer you can pray is, Lord God, in your sovereign grace, will you give me life? Will you give me life? And I believe those who call on the Lord in faith, God does give life. And is probably, even if you want to pray that prayer, is already doing it. That's the first thing. If you want to change, you have to be converted. You have to have that experience of God breathing new life into your heart because it comes from Him. The, the foundation of change comes from the resurrection of Jesus. I know at that point in my life, I was raised with Christ and God changed me. And I've seen a lot of people change. I know it's a reality, and perhaps you have too. I've seen people like Ron Marlette change radically. It's because God awakened his soul. That's one requirement, is conversion. But then this conversion, this awakening, awakens us to something. In fact, something that's supreme. That's what the rest of the verse says when it says, well, let me read the whole thing. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. That's the assumption, the presupposition. That's the foundational plank of change. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ. He's the essence of true life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Out of this conversion of soul... Paul then instructs them, this is now what you have to do. You have to set your heart on Him. And you have to set your mind on Him. And the verb tenses of both of those, setting your heart and setting your mind, um, indicate that it's to be a repeated thing. You can't stop doing it. To set your heart on something, or other, uh, literally translated, to seek after something means you reorient your will to that one thing. Uh, it's, it's what the Olympian does when he trains and... and uh, orients his entire will towards the training process to win the gold medal. That's, that's what's in view, is seek the things above where Christ is. Set your heart on it and also set your mind, that contemplative intellectual capacity that we have to, to think about, ponder, and remember what he is, who he is. That is how, I think, change happens. You see, verse 5 that talks about killing sin follows these instructions to us to set your heart on Him and set your mind on Him. That is, reorient your whole life around Him and make sure that's a constant process in your life, that your life is about being full of Him. That will do far more for you in terms of changing your life than just starting with verse 5 and trying to kill it on your own. Most of us know what it is to seek something or set your heart on something or mind on something if you look at it in terms of analogies of lesser life, of things that you've set your mind on, like a retirement or a vacation. You think about it all the time. You want it. You kind of reorient all your schedules towards that. 
When I think of setting your heart on something or setting your mind on something, what immediately comes to my mind is Tom Hanks in Castaway. You've seen the movie? It's a great movie. I love the movie, and I love, I love Tom, Tom Hanks. But if you haven't seen the movie, basic plot line is, is that he, he has just proposed to or offered a ring to his love of his life, who's played by um, Helen Hunt, right? Um, and he loves her, and he's ripped away from her. He gets on a plane. Of course, a plane crashes out in the middle of the ocean. He's the only one that survives and ends up living for years on a deserted island all alone. And there's a scene that I never forget in the movie, and that is he's in this cave. And the cave is kind of a perfect setting to reflect his life. It's all dark. And he has this flashlight. You remember what he does with the flashlight? He keeps looking at a little tiny picture he has of the love of his life. And he turns on the flashlight, and he shines it on her face, and then he turns it off. He's just laying there. And he turns it on again, sees her face, turns it off. He just keeps doing that turning it on, looking at her, turning it off, turning it on, and turning it off. Because he wants to think about her. He loves her. Probably thinking about the smell of her perfume or what it felt like to look into her eyes, what it felt like to hug her, thinking of memories that he had with her, thinking of her voice, thinking of what it would one day be like to embrace her again. That is, he's constantly thinking and remembering and feeling and seeing, just clicking that light on and off and on and off. And of course, the movie ends very sadly because he doesn't get her. But she was, and her face was, the saving hope that kept him alive. That's exactly what Paul's talking about when he talks about setting your heart and your mind on him. That if we are to change, it requires each day for us to turn that flashlight on and off, on and off, and on and off. Now, of course, we can't see Jesus, not yet anyway. But we know him. We know that he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. That he is creator, and he is savior, and he is powerful, and yet he is personal. He is almighty God, and yet he is meek, and he's humble. I mean, those are things that if I take any time to ponder and think about, I, my, my heart is pumped with thoughts of Christ. And that's the kind of motivation you need to keep you from giving in to the times where you were inclined to give in to your sinful side. Is to, to be pumped up on the truth of who Jesus is. That's required each day. The most important thing that you can do getting up in the morning and each day is to make sure your life is full of Christ and that your heart is set on it and your mind is set on Him. Again, that's, that's the kind of motivation that's needed for change. And if you were to do that, if that was to be your constant practice and exercise of your life, that you actually did that, then there would be change. Or let me look at it another way. Um, first house that my wife and I bought, we planted two artichoke plants. You like artichokes. You guys like artichokes? Well, my family's weird. We like artichokes. So I planted these two artichoke plants, and um, they grew, and they were getting ready to bud, you know, the little part that you cut off and you eat. Well, uh, I went out there, and it was nice and big. So I was ready to eat one of our homegrown artichokes, and uh, I looked at it, and there were hundreds, if not thousands, of aphids just infecting the whole thing. It was, it was black. That's how nasty it was. And my neighbor was a bit of a green thumb, and so I asked her, I said, hey, 
so what do you do about aphids? And she gave me a secret family recipe for aphids. And I sprayed it on my plant and about killed the thing. I mean, all the, all the, the leaves wilted. And I just thought, no, family recipe. I might as well throw in gas on my plant. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, um, I went to a nursery and I asked somebody who knew about plants. And I'll never forget what they told me. They said, the best defense that your plant has to resist disease and even plant, uh, even bugs, is to make sure it's healthy. If you fertilize your plants and keep it well watered, that's the best defense it has. Now, of course, you can use chemicals. And I checked with somebody just recently, and they said, yeah, no, it's true, that the best defense is a great offense. In order for your plant to resist the disease, keep it healthy. And, of course, it seems somewhat blasphemous to... to um, compare Jesus to fertilizer or water. But your best defense is to have a life that's full of Christ. It's the best defense you have. So, requirements for change, conversion of the soul, that has to be real. Secondly, is you have to have this concentrated supreme focus on Jesus. And there's one final one that comes from the context. You can't find it in the actual verses of verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. And that is, in order for you to change, you have to have an intimate connection with Christ-centered people. Let me say that again. You have to have an intimate connection with Christ-centered people. And that Christ-centered part is very important. It's not just being connected to people, even people calling themselves Christians, but people you know are setting their heart and their mind on Christ. The reason I think that's important is because many of us who have grown, grown up with a modernized mindset which emphasizes the individual, individual rights, individual power, miss the fact that the ancients didn't think that way. That is, Paul, Hebrew people, they thought very much communally and collectively. They understood that what happens to the one affects the other. And we oftentimes don't think that. When we try and apply this um, set your hearts on things above or set minds on things above, immediately we're thinking individualistically, how am I going to do this? And there is an individual aspect to it. We all have to do it individually. Or even when we get to verse 5 that talks about put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly, we think of that as an individual enterprise, but I would like to submit to you that it is something we do in relationship with one another, in connection with one another. And that is, that is something that has been lost in the, mo- in, in the modern church is, is the ability to have deep relationships with people who know you, who you share your life with, and who actually have this longing for Jesus that warms your soul and actually strengthens you. I'm talking to the guys last night. It was interesting to me to, to reflect that if, you know, at the guys' retreat, you know, we have quite a few men that come to our church when you count all three services, and yet we have 50 there. You know, women have a retreat, and you can, depending on the space and the, the place, you know, you have 100, 150 show up. And I think that one of the reasons is because men have a difficult time getting relational with each other. I don't know if we think that it's somehow feminine or not masculine to relate to each other, but, you know, most of the time we start talking about something serious and we want to say, well, how about those bears, you know? Just kind of ease the tension. That's, that's, that's the truth. Perhaps it's because we're proud. And don't want to show weakness. I mean, that's our culture is men don't show weakness. Um, reminds me a little bit about what Q said to 007. Remember one of those 007 shows when he said, I've taught you two things. 
007, that is, always have an exit plan and never let them see you bleed. Remember that? Never let them see you bleed. In other words, don't ever show weakness. And that's the mindset of most men, even in the church. And because of that, you don't want to show weakness. And I'll tell you, unless we get to the point where we're connected at a, at a, at a place where we can share weaknesses with one another, with someone you can trust and someone who's Christ-centered, then I don't know that that change will ever happen. At least it won't happen at the rate that it could. Um, and it's not just sharing the negative stuff of life, but finding someone, uh, one or two or three people who, you know, love Jesus um, and, you know, love the truth. And when you get together, you know that your soul has been fed and you know that there's new energy and strength because you met with that other person. I'll tell you, the, the, the best, one of the best things that you can do is to find one, two, three, four people that you trust. You can't do this with anybody or everybody. Um, is that you can pour your life out to. You can be totally honest that they know everything about you, you know everything about them, and at the same time, they love the Scripture, they love talking about Jesus, and you love talking about Jesus, and you love praying for each other. If you find that kind of a relationship, that kind of a connection, man, that is, that is a recipe for change in your life. Most of us are afraid of it, but it's what we most desperately need, is to be connected with Christ-centered people, community. I mean, that's, that's what the ancients thought. That's what they believed. It's even here in Colossians. If you back up a chapter, he talks about community. He says in verse 2, he says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He wants the people of God be, to be united in love. But there's a purpose in this union or this community. And he goes on to say, So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Don't miss it. He says... He's working in his purposes. They, the body might be united in love. People of Christ might be united in love for a particular purpose. And that is that they may come to full understanding and that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom. In other words, it's a communal discovery. So we are to set our hearts and our minds on Christ who is above communally. That's part of why we gather is, is so that we can have our hearts stirred and warmed and remember just how great He is so that we can go into another week and we can find ourselves stronger and more strengthened so that we don't give in to those sinful tendencies. That's, that's what it's about. That's what community is about. And it's what Paul here instructs them. And it's, it's how we are to practice our, our, our Christian life. And it's how change happens is, is in this relationship. And so it's, I would challenge you, find somebody. Pray, Lord, give me, send me someone that I can be vulnerable with and they can be vulnerable with me, that we can, we can maybe read a portion of Scripture together, we can pray for each other, we just build one another up in Christ and get pumped. I'll tell you, it makes all the difference in my life. I have guys that I meet with periodically through the week. I meet with Ron Marlette on Thursday morning and he always asks me, Dan, how have your eyes been? Have you been looking at anything bad? And I, you know, I ask him the same questions. and it, we, this, it doesn't stop there. I think accountability without Christ-centeredness ends up being legalism. But I'll tell you what, he asked me the questions, and then we start talking about what the Lord's doing. I get pumped. He gets pumped. I pray for him. He prays for me. I walk out of there, and I feel a little bit like Pie Pie the Sailor Man. Do you remember Pie Pie the Sailor Man? Some of the younger ones won't. But, man, he took his spinach and he just walked out, and he's able to take, was the Brutus, out. You know, that's, that's how we feel. And on Wednesday, I meet with Michael Coffey. We meet for an hour. We keep it to an hour. And we open the Scripture. We read maybe a few sentences or, or a paragraph um, in Scripture, at least we, we try to meet every week. And um, we talk about it, and we end up talking about life and, and saying, man, this is where I'm struggling, this is, this is how this relates to me, and talking about Jesus and praying for each other. And I walk away there totally energized. Dan Overby, 
I'm able to walk. He's in the office right next to me, able to walk in and just say, hey, man. And we talk about, he's known me since I was 17, 16 years old. He knows the good, bad, and the ugly, and he still loves me. And those are the guys I wouldn't survive without. And every one of you, if you want to change, have to have those people in your life. And now it's up to you to take and discover those people. I'd love to say the church could facilitate that, but it doesn't work. We've tried. You need to pray. You need to ask God, God, give me a brother or a sister that I can just share my life with that loves Jesus so that I'm strengthened to ready to go out and fight another day. That's what you need. And then you're ready for verse 5. Then you can kill or do a lot better at putting to death those things. Do you see the process? It starts with God bringing the soul to life and conversion. If you don't have that, you don't got anything. And then it comes with this concentrated focus on the greatness of Jesus. And if you're doing that every day, and then you have this connection with the community, and you're setting your heart and mind on Christ in community, I think change is going to happen. It's inevitable. It will happen. Now, I want to make one qualification. What I've taught you tonight, actually what Paul has taught us tonight, it's not a quick fix. You can't expect, I'm going to practice this tonight, and tomorrow I'm going to wake up a perfect man or woman. This is not a pill to swallow. It is a path of life to follow. Every day, this is the path. God has awakened my soul. I will fill my heart and mind with Christ, and I will seek strength in my brother and sister in whom also the spirit of the living Christ lives. And together, we will break through those cast iron barriers that have kept you. But that's, brothers and sisters, what is required. Conversion, concentration on Christ, and then community. And that's what I want for a church. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for my life. Not just that, but I want to see the explosion of fruit of joy and love and peace. And and to see people that are so attractive to the outside world that they know that our Christianity is not a hollow shell. It's real. And they want the same thing we have, just like I wanted, but my brother in the service had. Lord, make that true in our lives. Make that true in our church. I pray for those even here who may find themselves wondering, have you ever opened my heart to the truth? Have you ever done this supernatural miracle of opening my eyes to the truth? And I pray, Lord, if that be the case, that you would give them the humility to cry out to you. I pray, Father, for those of us who have been too busy or too lazy to place Christ at the very center of our hearts and mind every day, that you would change and break the habits of busyness that are, end up being nothing less than sinful. If it keeps us from being filled with the wonder of Christ who changes us day by day by day, and for others of us who have no connection with people that's real and deep, that you would give us the humility and the integrity to find that person and to just find somebody who will be our, our spiritual Christian soulmate and help us on this race we call the Christian life. Lord, I pray as we worship you now that you would just again fill us with your spirit and fill us with your truth. Thank you for being our God and our King and being patient with us. In Jesus' name, amen.